Hey, what's happening, everybody? Thank you for joining us on another episode of An Earful in the Emerald City. Uh, thank you for being here. We appreciate having you guys. Uh, episode number 79 here, you guys. 79. We have a very special show for you because we have a very special guest for you. Joining me on the show today was the wonderful Mr. Jack Van Eaton. Jack Van Eaton joining me for the show. He is a World War II veteran. He is the a former L.A. County Fire Commissioner. And just an all-around good guy. Uh, sat down with him. I met him actually at uh, Memorial Day service I went to. He was attending as well. Started chatting with him a little bit. You know, I wanted to shake his hand, move in, get a little photo op, you know, the typical stuff. And started chatting with him, had an enjoyable conversation, and he agreed to uh, sit down for us on the podcast. And I thought it'd be a great episode for you guys. So, uh, got him on here. Um, quite the story he has. Quite the story, you guys. You wouldn't believe. I mean, how much this guy's seen. And 93 years he's been around 93 years and and still kicking you guys so and kicking hard actually i i want to add but uh yeah sat down with him so enjoy this guy's a really really great story really fun to listen to uh different time but uh man sure sure is interesting so uh jack jack van eaton you guys uh hope you enjoy and thank you for listening appreciate it guys Give us a little bit of your uh, backstory, your background, uh, you know, where you came from, where you grew up. Okay. Well, my name's Jack Van Eaton. I'm a World <clears throat> I'm a World War II veteran, and I was born and raised in the central part of Saskatchewan, Canada, out on a farm, and uh, I learned how to ride horses and milk cows and do all those good things that farm boys do, <laughs> and... Uh, as we grew up, uh, we learned a lot of mechanical things and and uh, learned how to handle machinery. And uh, country schools out there in the in the middle of Saskatchewan ended at the eighth grade. Once you got through the eighth grade, that's all the education that was available. Really, there were no school buses to take you to town or any place. So as uh, the children became the age of eight, I mean, finished the eighth grade. Uh, we ended up coming to Yakima, Washington, and going to high school. And those of us who came down and went through high school never went back to Saskatchewan. We just stayed <laughs> in the U.S. And we were U.S. citizens because the parents were still citizens when I was born in Canada. So I had dual citizenship. Oh, okay. So anyway, and uh, my class was going to graduate in June of 1942, and December 7th, 1941, we all know what transpired. Pearl Harbor was bombed, and the United States was at war, and the next couple of days, the uh, president declared war on Japan. Can you can you still remember that day, you know, when that proclamation was made and when that happened? That, that was quite well planted on my mind, and uh, I didn't have a clue where Pearl Harbor was. I didn't know all that geometry, mm -hmm. geography, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but anyway, I, uh, the fact that 
our country had been bombed by a foreign country was uh, very well implanted on my mind. And some of the high school students, uh, just two or three of them just left high school and went in the Army right then and there within the next few days. And um, one of them, one in particular that I remember, his name was Hackett, and, and I remember that very shortly after he got in, he, he went in the Navy, and very shortly after he got in, he got out to sea, and he was captured. He was, he was a prisoner of war longer than I was in the Army. Wow. And uh, that kind of an indelible impression in my mind. But anyway, um, I, I, we all had to sign up uh, for the draft board, and I knew that both my brother and I would end up in the service, and I decided I should go home and visit my family before I went in the service. So I went up to Canada to this visit. This was after this, you graduated. After, after graduation, yes. And I got to the border, and I hadn't requested permission to leave the country from the draft board, so they pulled me off the train <laughs> and wired the draft board to see if I, if I was trying to escape or if it was okay to leave. And um, I was there for about three hours, and the next train was coming, and the draft board hadn't responded yet. And so they said, well, I guess they're not worried about you, so we'll get on the next train and... So I went away. So away I went, and we finally got up to the family. And and um, there's always work to do on the farm, and so I pitched in and helped, and had a kind of an open-ended uh, procedure there. And harvest came along, and I started. I helped in the harvest, and then one day had a heavy rainstorm, and then the next day it froze. Dad says, "Well, that's going to stop the harvest." probably won't ever be able to get the rest of the grain off because of, unless it really warms up in a hurry. So my brother was already in college, in a little college in Iowa, and I thought, well, I ought to go see him before we um, end up in the service, may never get a chance to see him again. So I took the bus and went down to Lamona, Iowa to visit with him and College had already been going for a couple of weeks, and and I really didn't have any plans on going to college. But I got there, and everybody was so friendly, and, and it seemed like, well, maybe I ought to go to college. <laughs> and I went to church on Sunday, and sitting there, and I asked the girl sitting next to me, do you know that dark-haired girl up there with a beautiful smile? And she said, yes, I do. I said, well, I don't, and we need to correct this. <laughs> and this is really important because later on I asked her to marry me, and she said she would. And after I got back from the service, she married me and shared 67 more years of her life with me. Wow. So, uh, <clears throat> did, you feel, did you feel before you went out, did you kind of feel the need to reconnect with a lot of your family members and see everybody because you kind of knew where the situation was heading and that you probably were going to be sent out to fight in the war? Well, I, I, I knew that I was going to end up going, and that's why I went up to Canada to visit them, and, mm -hmm. and then I got back to Yakima where I was living, and, 
And I let the draft board, I already had an exemption for the whole year, but I let the draft board know I'd quit college. And they said, oh, good, we, now we can send you to, <laughs> send you to the service. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I ended up, uh, and I told the draft board, well, let me, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, while, we were, while I was at college, I, my brother and I both went to Kansas City and took the aviation cadet exam. And um, he passed it, and I flunked. <laughs> he flew, and I walked. <laughs> so anyway, uh, when I got back to Yakima and told the draft board that I really would like to be in the Air Corps, lesson number one, if you want to be in the Air Corps, join it. Don't go to through the draft board. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned that too late. But anyhow, they I ended up in uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, in the 526th Armored Infantry Battalion. This was a new program that they designed to transport infantry people quicker in half-tracks, kind of like a two-ton pickup truck, but the back wheels instead of wheels was tracks like a tank. And... um, I looked around at those tanks, and I thought, well, no matter how big a wing we put on those little guys, those uh, uh, tanks and half-tracks, they're not going to get off the ground. So I uh, finally was able to get a pass to get into Louisville, and I found the aviation or the Air Corps recruiting station, and I went in and asked them if I could take the exam. And they said, well, sure, and fill out this form. So I filled out the form, and the second lieutenant's reading about the third line, place of birth, Canada. He says, "You can't be a, a air, you can't join the Air Corps. You, we can't have foreigners flying our airplanes." <laughs> so I said, "Well, but I am a Canadian. I am an American. I was born of American parents." And he says, "Well, I need paperwork to prove that." So, so and of course, I sent a letter to mother and. Would have been nice if we'd had email, but it yeah. took about three or four months of letters and back and forth. And just, oh, I need more proof. And finally, finally, I think the guy thought I was so dumb spending my Saturdays in there with him that I wouldn't be able to pass the exam anyway. So he let me take it. And, what was uh, what was it about the Air Corps that intrigued you? Oh, well, I did. You kind of went towards that. Yeah, when I was a kid, well, there was a barnstormer, and I got an airplane ride. And when I was about 12 years old, for 25 cents for a 20-minute ride with oh, wow. some other people, and and I thought, well, that's for me. I really want to fly. But um, turned out that I never did. But but I did get uh, finally circumstances and testing and stuff, and and I finally got transferred into the Air Corps basic training program which I already had been through, and I learned where my left foot was earlier on, but they had explained that to me again. <laughs> and then they put your left foot forward and then your right foot and keep doing that, and we call that marching, and away you go. <laughs> that's, and uh, That's all it takes. <laughs> all, all sorts of interesting executions, rear march and left and all those good things. And we look pretty sharp when you're marching in sequence like that. So, but anyway, finally, uh, there was an aviation, uh, uh, there was, um, 
the next step was to go to a college, a college training detachment, and learn things there. And so they would put up names on the bulletin board, and it would be your turn to go and have a physical exam so you could go to the next phase. And I got really well acquainted with a buddy from Brooklyn, and uh, his name was Valant. You know, line, my name is Van Eaton. You line up according to alphabetical, alphabetical mm -hmm. some of the things. So anyhow, uh, it was really important that you go through each of these steps and each of these phases. If you fail something, with, you may be washed out of the program or whatever. And we had to have the physical exam before we could go on to this college training detachment. And so his name finally came up on the board one morning, and, and uh, he came to me and he said, man, I don't know what to do. He says, I'm really, I, I, I feel terrible, I'm sick. If I go on sick call, I won't be able to pass the exam, and if I go to the exam, I probably won't be able to pass the exam. So we talked about it, and if he, if he failed to do it, he'd be out of the sequence, and, and nobody knew what the terrible consequences would be if you, you know, I mean, we were really eager to go and get going in this next thing. Mm -hmm. So I finally said, Give me your dog tags, and I'll go take the test for you. I'll take your medical. <laughs> he, said, he said, you think that'll work? And I said, well, I'm healthy. I don't know. I surely could pass the exam. And uh, so we did, and he hid out somewhere. He, he hid out, and I went and took the exam, and I passed. And uh, then three days later, why my name was on the board, so I had to go take my own physical exam, uh -huh. and I passed. And he got transferred out, and then he went to, and I don't know what where he went. And then I got uh, transferred to my next phase, and I ended up uh, going to Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And it's a regular college, and we had civilian teachers, and um, things were going great guns there, and we were out there doing our morning routine at Reveille and, and uh, marching around town and uh, doing our class work. And, and uh, we had uh, inspections, and if there was a button unbuttoned in your shirt, why, well, they'd give you a gig. <laughs> and if you got two or three gigs while you had to march from one post to another for an hour on Saturday instead of going to town. Oh, boy. So you, and even if your shoes were, you had, your shoes had to be tied with a square knot while they were in the closet. Yeah, I mean, it, everything was just detail, detail, detail. And, and we had to eat square meals, and I always thought a square meal was a good meal, but a square meal in the, in the program you sit at attention, you look straight ahead, you get something off your plate with a spoon or fork or whatever, and you raise it you raise it straight up and ninety degree from your even with your mouth and make a ninety degree turn and 
bring the food into your mouth and you repeat that to go down and that's that's what a square meal was and jeez they're covering <laughs> all aspects of your life here aren't they wow well i guess it's all a matter of uh, learning how to uh, accept borders and uh, learning uh, very precise activities yeah I assume that all had some kind of a bearing on future, on the future, um, future outcomes, job, job that when you were supposed to get to. Yeah. So things were going good. We were doing fantastic. And one morning at, at lineup after all the activities on the parade ground there, why they said, okay, we have a new order. The following listed men will report to the parade ground at 1,300 hours, fully packed, ready to go move out. You're being transferred. And he read off a whole bunch of names, including mine. What the deal was, anybody that came into the Air Corps from another branch of the service got transferred out. And they were needing ground force men, needing infantrymen. They were getting ready for the big invasion. and And so... Out, out, that was the end of that program. We ended up in the. I ended up in uh, armored infantry at Fort Knox, Kentucky. How long had that process taken you? Was that like a two-year process? All uh, that? Uh, no. Getting to this point? No. That after in the Air Corps, I was probably only in the Air Corps for four or five months. Okay. Air Corps to 78th Infantry Division. Okay. And the 78th Infantry Division had just returned from Tennessee uh, maneuvers, and this is a, was the third time that they had taken a bunch of people and gone out and learned how to do all this warfare stuff and do the maneuvers. And they had been promised that this would be the group you'd go overseas with. This is going to be your buddies, and this is what you're going to have. Then he got into um, Camp Pickett, Virginia, and they were given orders that everybody, corporals and below, are get ready to be transferred out as replacements. And they were transferred out, and a couple, three days later, we came in to replace them and then they had to go back to Tennessee and do maneuvers to teach us how to do the same thing that they'd already done a couple of times. Hmm. And uh, the troops at the 78th weren't happy with us. We weren't happy with them. It took a while for us to finally get that all figured out and become a big happy family. But we finally... Uh, everybody got busy and knew that it was serious business and we got our training done and came back to, uh, I don't remember what camp, I guess we must have come back to Camp Pickett, Virginia and made preparations to go to New York and get aboard a troop, troop ship and head for Britain. And uh, in the meantime, the Normandy invasion had transpired, and uh, war was going on. That had already happened before you that got on the ship. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure if it happened before I got. I'm. I. It seems like it got was all done. It was June of '44. Yeah. Well, I didn't get on ship till October. Uh, sometime later. Okay. Yeah. So a little bit after. 
So, so, uh, so what was the mood like at that point? I mean, how how were people feeling? Were, were well, people feeling confident? Were they still uneasy? Oh, no, not sure? no. We were a pretty well-oiled organization. We got to know everybody. Uh, one, one incident that I think I need to mention is my, my first sergeant. He was GI from the tip of his toenails to the last hair on his head. <laughs> he... Uh, was a born and raised in a coal mine town in Virginia, north or I'm not sure which Virginia, but anyway, coal mine town. And he saw what working in a coal mine had done to his father and his older brothers. And so he had his older sister go to town with him and pretend to be his mother and sign for him to join the army when he was 16 years old. <laughs> and... Uh, so he was he was strictly GI and and uh, when we were there in camp, I, everybody had certain details. And my detail happened to be every Wednesday I was supposed to water the lawn. Well, this particular Wednesday afternoon, it was raining like crazy, and I thought, well, thank you, I'm having some help, and we're getting the lawn watered. So I snuck into a barracks, which you're not supposed to be in during the daytime, and got a magazine or was going to read it, write a letter to the folks, I don't know. So anyway, I was in the barracks, and and so Sergeant Green was leaving the office and going somewhere else, and he decided to go through the barracks, and here I am, and I hear oh, I hear door open, and all of a sudden I hear, Soldier, what are you doing in here? And I said, well, uh, 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 I'm kind of relaxing. He's, don't you have a detail? Well, yes, sir. It's watering the lawn and it's raining. You have a raincoat, haven't you? <laughs> yes, sir. So I went and put my raincoat on and got me a garden hose and I went out and watered the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and then we all we all got used to that kind of stuff, and and you you do what you're told to do, and you, you get along good. So then on Friday, the thirteenth of October, nineteen forty four, nineteen forty four, we went aboard ship. Actually, we'd got aboard it the day or two before, and left and left uh, New York went past the Statue of Liberty and said, we hope we see you again later, lady. <laughs> and uh, we went on, our group went on a converted English cruise ship, which was designed to carry 300 first-class passengers and a few second-class. We had about 3,000 people on there. It was a little crowded. They had made cots in the ballroom, 18 inches apart, eight eight high. So you had oh, a wow. canvas, piece of canvas between four pieces of metal pipe, and that was our sleeping quarters, and our duffel bag was there. That was what we had. I think it took 13 days to go over. Uh, the Carnivan Castle was faster than the Liberty ships, and so they told us, okay, you guys are going to go and by yourself. You're faster, and you're faster than the German subs. But we all 
realized that we weren't faster than their torpedoes if they <laughs> decided to find us. <laughs> yeah. So we spent a lot of time on deck. Uh, I think we only had two meals a day on the ship by the time they fed everybody why it was time to feed the next meal and so and uh, it was it was kind of a somber 13 days or so getting over to England and we finally landed in Bournemouth England and were there regrouping by the time it's, you get a whole division transported 10,000 people and all their equipment and everything it takes a little while to put it all back together again <laughs> came time for us to get transported over to Europe over to France and the the uh, invasion uh, the Normandy invasion was long past since and and they were fighting up in the north France and and we started across Europe in convoys and wherever there's a Y in the road or some way that it, in case a vehicle behind you didn't see where you, which way you went, why they'd drop people off to point which direction you're supposed to go, let this way or that way. And, and the French people were just so grateful to see American uniforms. And they'd, they'd bring things out, cookies and stuff that they hadn't had the privilege of making or any equipment to make it with for during a, a Nazi uh, occupation. And uh, Americans were just this really welcome. We uh, kept heading toward the front lines and Thanksgiving arrived and the ability to transport and provide uh, all the stuff that's needed boggles my mind. Uh, we ended up with Thanksgiving dinner, ended up with turkey hmm. in the middle of a cow pasture in Belgium somewhere, raining like crazy. And you got our metal mess kits, and you go down there, and the first thing they put on was the turkey. And by the time you get through and get all the rest of the stuff down the road, my piece of turkey had learned to swim in the mess kit before. <laughs> by, by, by the time we finally got to the end of the line, but I caught up to it and ate that Hummer anyway. But then we finally get. Uh, on up to where, and the Battle of the Bulge broke loose some, somewhere in here, and I don't remember the dates and where we were specifically. So anyway, we moved up, up uh, toward the front lines, and the 78th Infantry Division was given a area in the Hurtgen Forest, or there was two forests, and I can't remember which was which. My tour agent, my tour travel guide was the pits. They never told me anywhere, anytime where I was. They were afraid I'd let the Germans know. The Germans <laughs> knew where we were. Yeah. But but anyway, this Hurtgen Forest, and they were told, <clears throat> hold this line at all cost. The Germans had already broken through our line, and they were battling to try to push them back again. And the guys up front did the job that they needed to do. They recovered and got more P-51 
people in to help him up there, and they straightened out the Battle of the Bulge, and pretty, and then we proceeded on to a normal invasion of continuing to move into toward Germany. Did you guys did you guys know before that battle broke out? Was there a sense or a feeling at all that this one was going to be a little bit bigger than maybe some previous battles you guys had dealt with? I mean, did anybody feel that way or well, we we had kind of sh- surprise everybody. Actually, we hadn't dealt with any battle. We weren't aware of <clears throat> we weren't really aware of what the front line was li- was like. So so anyway, we uh, had that had the uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and that was quite a treat, even though it was raining and miserable. But uh, and then that we continued to move up to and uh, up to the front, and the 78th Infantry Division, which I was in, ended up uh, hold this line at all cost. The, the the actually battle was going on a mile or two or whatever distance beyond us. But we were, the, in case the Germans broke through again through the front line, then we were to hold the line at all cost. And that's pretty serious business, all cost. But um, that never happened again. And, and we just started advancing and in our first actual combat for the unit that I was in, I was a water-cooled 30 caliber machine gunner, and uh, that puppy on a good day could pump out about 250 rounds a minute. But uh, let me back up a little bit. During the cold winter and the snow, we were freezing our feet and uh, ears and toes and I mean it was uh, the coldest winter that they'd had in 50 years and there we were trying to deal with that. And the temperature was? Well it was 50 degrees below freezing and uh, that that's Fahrenheit. I I don't know whether they were on the other kind of temperature or not but cold is cold. Either way, a little chilly. <laughs> 50 degrees below freezing is cold. Yeah. So we had an incident there where uh, I had to use my better imagination. Some apparently southern colonel had uh, decided that the, mo- the snow was moist and would cause the weapons to rust which probably was an accurate assumption. But he uh, suggested that some sergeant get oil from the motor pool and go and require that the weapons all be oiled. Having been born and raised in Canada where it was 50 below zero, on occasion I knew that oil just kind of gums up when it gets cold. And an automatic weapon, if we needed it to work, probably wouldn't work when it was had oil on it. So I politely said, I'm sorry, sir, but I can't uh, do that. I'm not, I will not oil my weapon. He said, this is the order, soldier. You will oil the weapon. I said, no, 
I will not oil the weapon, and I will not allow anybody else to oil it. This is my weapon, and I'm responsible for it. All right, soldier. This will be reported, and you will be court-martialed. And I thought, will they court-martial me out here? I not only thought it, I said it. Or will I be forced to go into a warm building? <laughs> and that upset him just a little bit, <laughs> which obviously wasn't my intention to upset the sergeant. <laughs> well, you know, hey, like you said, you're responsible for your weapon, you know. you got to take care of that puppy, <laughs> so, especially when your life's on the line. So well, anyway, uh, um, when the... When we finally went online to attack a town, and we were informed to, and, and our riflemen started across this little valley into the town, and we were informed to spray lead on the edge of town. Why, I pulled the trigger, and mine went, and the other guy pulled the trigger and it went bang and he had to manually eject the, the uh, spent cartridge. And he had to do that about six or seven times before the firing warmed up the oil enough to allow the gun to go automatic. As it turned out, since we were on the offensive instead of on the defensive and weren't being, had a bunch of guys running out of shooting, why it, turned out okay but um, as soon as you open up a machine gun my artillery starts looking for you and we were in the hedgerow and we could hear the artillery booming and about every we could see you but looked like every 25 or 30 yards why it was another blast and they were just coming to toward us in this hedgerow uh, hedgerow is really just a line between two farmers where they both piled rocks and, and brush and stuff grew up and in between the farms. And we were in this hole that actually it was a German foxhole that we had found. And uh, we could just see the puppies coming and we said, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to get up and run and let the snipers pick us off or are we going to sit here in the hole and hope that it misses us and somebody said my vote to stay and pray and so somebody else said sounds good to me so we stayed and artillery shell landed about 15 feet to our right side <laughs> and the next one about 15 or 20 feet to our left side and of course we didn't say, ha ha, you missed us, and start shooting our, our machine gun again because then they'd have re redesigned there. So we just kept the gun quiet, and uh, and it looked like the guys were pretty well in the town anyway, and we had done what we needed to do. So we got the orders eventually to pull out, and the interesting and life-saving for us the original plan was that we would go with our our two guns would go with the lieutenant our two squads would go with the lieutenant off to the right of town and the other 
two squads would go to the left of town, and my sar my sergeant was running around looking for a good place for somebody to find to set up their guns, and he found this German foxhole. So he he radioed the lieutenant that uh, we have this great foxhole in Stafford, and this guy's up here. Lieutenant said, "Well, you know where it is. You take it, and I'll just take these guys with me over to where where we had planned on you going." Okay, that was fine. So then we went. We got out of there, and we're heading into town. And when you get out of a foxhole like that, just one guy goes out, and when he gets about 25, 30 yards away, why well, the next one falls out, so that in case mortar shells or artillery come in at you. Well, you're not going to get a whole group of you. You're not going to get injured. Hmm, yeah. And so we're strung out like that, heading into town, and all of a sudden, right next to us, plop, 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 three mortar shells, right perfectly placed along the where we were and right within 20 or 30 feet of us. And there were three duds. Oh, and wow. we said, thank you, Polacks. We'd heard that the Polish prisoners were being forced into the factories and that they were playing games when they could with some of the oh, wow. explosive devices. Yeah. And so there was three duds, and the only reason we could have three of them in a row was that somebody got uh, clever with what they were doing in wow. the factory. Did you guys realize that at the time that they were duds, or did you just, no, think we you just had, got lucky? We had, we had heard that there mm -hmm. was that slave laborers weren't particularly happy with what their circumstances. Yeah. And they were doing what they could, and yeah, especially the poles. Yeah, so that's that's what we heard. So wow. anyway, that's that's unique too. And and you know, I I just want to I want to ask you, you know, you're a machine gunner. I feel like there's a unique dislike for machine gunners when it comes to infantrymen. I mean, is that kind of the case? Like, do do or people always despise? I mean, the the enemy. Well, you know, the enemy yeah. is always. Well, well, they're not real happy to be have, have you squirting three two hundred fifty three hundred rounds a minute yeah. at their people. Yeah, so they always kind of got their eye on you. They're yeah. always the uh, minute they hear an automatic weapon, they go looking for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's smart though that you guys you guys cut it once they were <laughs> moving in on you, and then you know you you guys were in the clear at that point. So yeah. Yeah, you know, well, there's no, and then there was no use starting after the after they went past us. There's no use saying, "Well, okay, now you missed us, so we're going to start shooting again." Yeah, exactly. Send them an invitation to <laughs> come looking yeah. for us again. Sh yeah, shake your, you know what, Adam. <laughs> so anyway, when we got into town, and then we learned that, that there's two squads that went where our original destination was going to be. As soon as they got there and got set up, they were spotted by some German observer, and they got artillery, and seven of them were killed hmm. then and there, and several, and 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 the rest injured. So had we not made that exchange, we'd have been down there where that artillery shell came in. Wow! And so that starts out with uh, this, whatever you call it, uh, remorse, survivors, survivors remorse, wondering why me, why did I not, all that good stuff. Yeah. But you carry on and do what you, what you have to do. 
So anyway, uh, the town got pretty well cleared. And once the invading forces come in, civilians, dogs, cats, rats, and alligators, anything that's in town, it's German, it's out of town. They they get out of town because they have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Don't know how crazy the, the, the force that's coming in is going to get. So the next day, a white flag appears on the horizon and a German's coming in from, from the enemy territory. And we escort him into the office and, and he says there's a bunch of Germans out here that have run out of ammunition and they were just waiting to be captured. Now, of course, one of the things is if the easy way is always a trap. <laughs> and so, but, you know, you have to go and investigate it. So the officers put together a force to go out there and see what it's all about and round these guys up if possible. And they get out there to the woods and where we're supposed to start finding these people that want to give up, and all of a sudden the artillery starts coming in, and and uh, so we ended up getting pinned down. And how many? How many of you guys were there? Well, there was probably um, uh, seventy-five to a hundred okay. people, including the machine gunners. And so once you get pinned down, and you get then you got to kind of set up for your defensive. So the machine gunners are put out in front. So that if anybody comes up a trail or is through the bushes while you're out there and can shoot them off at the knees or whatever and and uh, protect them, so we spent the night out there. And my sergeant came and became my number two gunner uh, and to make sure that one of us was stayed awake all night so that if we hear or see anything, we could do the proper activity. And just at daybreak, why somebody with a automatic weapon, BAR, Browning automatic rifle, apparently saw something moving in the woods over there in the enemy territory, and he cut loose with a automatic burst, and and that woke up somebody over there, and they start searching the horizon, and evidently saw me and the sergeant sitting there. And we'd, we we had told the guy, just, you know, you shouldn't be doing that, and we should have got right up and moved because somebody once the once you make an announcement of where where there's an automatic weapon, why they they're not happy about it, so they start looking for it. So anyway, we said, you know, we ought to get out of here, and just about that time, said I said, well, I've already I've been hit. He says, I didn't hear anything. I said, well, I didn't hear anything, but I sure felt something. (laughs) So um, what had happened is a rifle bullet had gone through a tree about 18 inches in diameter, hit the buckle on my combat boot, and then the armor-piercing part of it proceeded on through my leg, and and, uh, luckily it didn't hit me in the other leg or in the sergeant in the butt because he was sitting there beside me. So anyway, he he said, I didn't hear anything. I said, but I sure felt something. So he grabbed me and we helped drag me off into the bushes out of sight again. So the medics got to me and gave me the pills that they're supposed to to 
antibiotic and or whatever, sulfa pills. A team of horses with a sled had just arrived. It was the 3rd of February and still lots of snow on the ground. And so my mode of transportation from the battlefield to town was on a sled between a, behind a team of horses. And when we got to town, where there was an ambulance there with three people in it, they put me in as the fourth person and closed the door and said, okay, take them away. And so we went <clears throat> to a field hospital where they did the preliminary surgery. When the uh, medics, we got to the medics and they cut the top of my shoe off and there was a piece of metal sticking out of my leg and I reached down and pulled it out and the copper jacket off of the rifle missile had been distorted and, and it was separated from the armor piercing part of the bullet and it didn't have enough weight to go through the leather when it hit the combat boot on the inside it just stopped there. Mm. I still have that piece of metal oh really and i consider that as my lifesaver wow so anyhow went and uh, from the field hospital why we were transported and by the time we got wherever it was we were going it was dark the ambulance stopped and all i heard was german conversation alto and blah 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 and all this german talk i thought that crazy driver got lost and we're captured now. Good <laughs> night. Now what are we done? Here we are, four cripples in the back of the ambulance. Pretty soon the ambulance doors got ripped open and somebody grabbed a gurney and dragging it out. And it's dark. It's dark inside. and I mean, it's dark outside. And, and yeah, there's no question we're... We Germans have got us. And once we get inside the door and where the lights are, why they had PW written on their shoulder. They were German prisoners of war. Ah, uh, okay. And so <laughs> that was a big relief. That was all American nurses and American doctors. And okay. Kind of guard there, guarding the prisoners of war. Yeah, you're probably feeling that horse-drawn uh, wagon was another trap, huh? <laughs> so... So anyway, it was a, a real relief. So uh, from there, the next day or two, I don't recall exactly, but we were transported to Paris to the airport and to be evacuated to England. And we were there two or three or four days. It was foggy in England, and the planes couldn't land. Finally, I got on a plane and went over and you were went. In, you were in Paris yes we were in Paris in at the airport in Paris same airport that Lindbergh landed at whatever mm -hmm. if that'll give anybody listening a clue as to where we were what was the mood like in Paris for those couple of days well, do you remember it all uh, it was not gay Paris I'll promise <laughs> you that <laughs> I mean we're I was a whole airport five or six hundred guys that are wounded waiting to be transported yeah, to England. That's true. Where did you have your surgery on your leg? Well, I had surgery at the first field hospital 
and I'm not sure whether I had more surgery after I got in. The primary thing I remember is that I needed, to, I was being ther given therapy. And a colonel came around, a doctor came around in charge of the hospital there and the nurses. And we had two nurses. One was a, one was a young, skinny nurse and the other one was a hefty young lady. And, and she, she was really sympathetic for us and didn't want to hurt us, so she'd slowly inject a needle and poke you really slow. And the other, the other lady would treat you like you were a dartboard, and you'd never feel, <laughs> never feel that one. But the one that she worked in nice and slow. Oh, ooh. <laughs> so I was always glad to see the little skinny young lady that come, and I knew I'd be treated quickly and, and without too much pain. But anyway, the nurse apparently told the doctor that uh, I didn't have much flexibility with my ankle. And the doctor mentally assumed that uh, there were some adhesions in there. So he grabbed me by the toes and by the calf and pulled my foot up toward my toes up toward the calf of my leg and ripped a bunch of Ouch. adhesions loose and uh, oh, then they had to get a pry bar and get me <laughs> off the ceiling <laughs> <laughs> but that was really i mean the wound itself this felt like somebody had kicked me and i don't recall any particular pain at the first hospital that i was in and that was the greatest amount of pain of the whole thing was that Colonel, saw your boot off. Thank, thank you, sir, very much for that. <laughs> so anyway, then as soon as they get up and get moving around by military, if you if you can move, you're going to get a detail. And so I could hobble around, and they gave me a detail, candling eggs. They were shipping eggs over from storage in the United States by the thousands or millions, and and. Uh, Nobody knew how long they'd been in storage, and candling is not a term that a lot of people understand, but it's a, you take a, a box with a bright light in it and it has a little hole about the size of a, a ping pong ball or a golf ball, and you hold the egg against that hole, and if you can see a yolk that's in one piece, it's okay. If you can't see the yolk as one piece, it's rotten, and you very carefully set it down because rotten eggs really smell like rotten eggs, I'll tell you for sure. So I did that for several days, and finally one day they said, Jack, we're going to give you a new, a new uh, detail. We're going to put you in charge of the ice cream factory. I says, oh, good heavens, don't do a thing like that. Don't throw me into the briar bushes. And uh, thinking about the rabbit and the briar bush. <laughs> so I said, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to be forced into being in charge of the ice cream factory, I promise you I will be absolutely sure to taste every batch that's made and make sure that it's just exactly the way it should be. <laughs> that was one of your most determined uh, details of the war, huh? <laughs> so, yeah, that was, that was really tough. 
I guess that old uh, peel and potatoes cliche is a little bit more accurate than people might think. <laughs> Since you mentioned potatoes, I'd forgotten all about this one story. It was back in the Air Corps, and we were in, there was a mess hall that was feeding, there was a kitchen that was feeding two mess halls, one on each side of it, and there was, must have been a couple of hundred people in each. And we, one day, a whole bunch of us got captured and sent into the kitchen to go on KP. And we're, I was with about five guys and peeling potatoes. And I mean, we're, we're feeding hundreds of people to mess holes. And the sergeant comes out, I need those potatoes faster. Well, we, we had knives and we're peeling potatoes. And that's not a really fast operation. <laughs> so he kept screaming at us, I need them faster, I need them faster. And one of the one of the more brilliant guys in the crowd, we can peel the potatoes faster. We can peel a potato by making six cuts. It'll go out there square or rectangular. And so we had a whole big bucket full of rectangular potatoes and the sergeant what the, is this all about? That's faster potatoes, Sergeant. <laughs> and so he, he just took them away and boiled them. It was not an efficient way. It was a lot of potatoes. A lot of potato was wasted in making them rectangular yeah. and square, but it was faster. Yeah. And that's what he wanted. So, and of course What about we, your um, pudding episode? Well, now that's a long ways back. <laughs> that's in England. My just because my la first name ended uh, first, the last letter in my first name Jack was K. I don't know why they always related that as KP, and I ended up on KP more than anybody else. But but anyway, I'd been on KP, and the cooks were cooking something, and. And uh, then my sergeant put me on guard duty to guard the kitchen. And I said, um, you know, it looked to me like they were making some vanilla pudding in there. Would you like to see if it's fit to eat? He says, I, th I think that we should do that. I think we ought to make sure that it won't make anybody sick tomorrow. So since I was a guard of the kitchen, why I took a couple of samples and he and I had this nice ch vanilla pudding. Well, it turned out next morning we had pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, man. My, that was a strange vanilla pudding. My, yeah. My, well, kind of bland. Some, some of the food tasted kind of strange <laughs> anyway. That's true. Yeah, you <laughs> didn't know what was going on. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, my sergeant never let me forget that. <laughs> Pancake batter for vanilla pudding. <laughs> Pancake pudding. <laughs> so, uh, so you're recovering. You're trying to get back to normal hair. How how long was this process, and how long did that take? You know, I don't. Well, you got shot in February. When did you go back? Well, when did the war end? In June. When was the war over? Yeah, I think it was May. Your, May. May of forty-five. So anyway, I while in the hospital. My my oldest brother, Canadian, married a 
Canadian girl who was born in England, and her she and her parents had uh, gone to move to Canada. And so she had relatives in England, and I wrote to her and got the relatives' address. And I wrote to the relatives and said that when I get out of this hospital, if I get a chance, I'd like to come and visit. And that turned out to be a interesting uh, deviation from the normal. Uh, when I was discharged from the hospital, by, uh, and I must have taken the train because there was no cars, hardly any cars moving because gas rationing was really strict there. So I got there, and they said, no, we don't have a bed for you to sleep in here, but our neighbor's son is off, and they have a bedroom that's vacant. And they have said that you'd be most happy to have you sleep over there at their bed in that bedroom. And so I went over, and that we went over, and were introduced to them, and and uh, decided what time I could come back and go to bed. And then when I got back, they wanted to know what time I wanted to get up, and and they uh, we decided uh, seven o'clock would be a good time to get up. And turns out that I woke up before 7 o'clock, and I thought, okay, I can't get up and go running into these people's house. I don't know who, the, you know, I don't know what's going <laughs> on in there. So I'll just wait until 7 o'clock when they wake me up. And in about 10 minutes to 7, why I noticed the doorknob turning, and so I pretended to be asleep so he could have the privilege of awakening me. <laughs> and uh, kind of looking through the slit of my eyes and he came in and snuck in there and grabbed my shoes and then went out and I thought that son of a gun stole my shoes what the heck am I going to do now what are the neighbors I mean this is how do, how do I get into these messes how, what's going to happen and I'm I'm really stewing and sweating on this thing, and you know how am I going to get to London barefooted? <laughs> and uh, anyway, pretty soon the doorknob starts to move again, and here he comes in, and he's got his shoes in his hands. He took them out and polished them. Oh wow! And I understand that that was a norm in Europe. In those days, you'd, at a hotel, you'd just leave your shoes in the hallway, and they'd come by and polish them. Mm. So I wasn't aware of that a little tradition, and sweated out for a while. So anyway, he, I said good morning, and I said, okay, I guess I better get up. No, 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 you can't get up yet. And so he had to go bring me a cup of tea and a crumpet or whatever it was so I could have a little snack in bed before I got up to start the day. Hmm. Very, very wonderful hospitality. And I don't recall how we got around town. I'm sure we didn't walk, but I can't imagine that we drove. So, But anyway, they took, us, took me over to the, showed me a German aviator's um, burial grounds in a cemetery behind the church there that it, he'd got shot down over town and they buried, give him a proper burial like normal people should. 
And the interesting thing was people up on top of the roofs there, and they were all that, you know, all mostly were thatched roofs. And I'd heard and read about thatched roofs, but there's all this big straw pile of straw on top of the house, and and it uh, really apparently is very very efficient um, uh, insulation and keeps the rain out. But it looked really looks funny when you're not used to that kind of a roof. So anyway, uh, time went by and I got down to the replacement. Actually, I got in. The, the war in Europe ended and I was on the train heading for London and I was in London, England the day after Victory in Europe Day. And if you don't think there was a bunch of happy, crazy English folks, their Piccadilly Circle or Circus, whatever it is, which is like Times Square in New York, that place was so crowded with overwhelmingly happy people that it was just incredible. And uh, if I'd have wanted to get on the other side of that crowd, and I could have got a ladder to get up there and walk on their heads. They would have never even noticed me there. <laughs> they were so happy. That's interesting. That's a that's an interesting place to be at the time. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of really happy people oh. over here too. Oh, but yeah. but for them, that threat was so real and so close and yeah. so dire at one point oh. that. Well, uh, they. Uh, children they sent the children out of the cities and out into the country and uh, the, the, the the movement of people in an effort to try to save lives was incredible and uh, so uh, it it and the evidence of toward the end of the war the Germans had these uh, rocket They'd have a bomb with a rocket on the end, yeah. V two ones and V twos, and they didn't care where they went. They just aimed them toward England, and they didn't care whether they landed in the middle of the hospital or whether they landed in the middle of town. Or yeah. they weren't. They weren't. It wasn't a matter of trying to destroy the infrastructure of the war effort. It was just to demoralize and kill, yeah, striking fear in people. And so, and and it was so obvious. I mean, it was just amazing. And uh, there was every reason in the world <clears throat> for them to be virtually out of their mind with joy when the victory in Europe was declared. Yeah, people don't, uh, I don't think, some people don't give Great Britain enough credit, but um, I mean, they, they went through a lot during the war. And in my opinion, they they were a big integral piece of defeating the Germans just because of their location strategically. And, you know, just because of the fight and the effort that they put in, uh, to, to fight back the Germans. Cause I mean, if, if great Britain was lost, I think that dramatically changes the outcome of the war potentially. You oh, know? Uh, actually. Yeah. And if, if the Germans had taken over great Britain, that me England, Scotland, and Ireland, all of that. Why? Uh, what base we'd have? 
that'd be an invasion for the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, you need that. You need that hub to launch bombers, right. and there was, it wasn't there. You know, you could launch them from Iceland. By the time you're dropping the bomb on them, you're going to be running out of fuel. You're going to be <laughs> landing a couple miles behind the front line. You yeah. know, so and, uh, Iceland it, probably isn't big enough. To, <laughs> and what you mentioned the bombers, and there's another part of the story that I forgot to mention as we travel as we went along. I was in a foxhole one night, and all it was was a hole in a snowbank. Yeah, but it did keep the wind out. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the morning, I heard this. I was awakened by this constant roar, constant roar, constant roar. And I finally opened my eyes, and, and it was just starting to daybreak. And I looked up at the sky, and as far as I could see in four different directions were bombers heading toward Berlin, north, south, east, and west. The sky was almost one of their first thousand plane raids, mm -hmm. a thousand bombers. I said, boys, I'm glad I'm on your side. Yeah, no kidding. I, I know, that's just, that's just like a picture that I, you can't even really imagine what that would look like, you know? No. E even today, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I there's a place down in Bothell, there's a, a community college where the crows gather at night. And even seeing 50 to 100 crows flying through the air at the same time is a little eerie and a, a little bit scary. Yeah. Let, let alone B-2 bombers, you know. <laughs> I can't even imagine what that would be like. Oh, B-17s and yeah. B-24s and Lancasters and I don't know who else had bombers over there, but everything that they could put in the air. And it was just absolutely incredible. Uh, so... Anyway, I ended up at the replacement depot, and the guy said, uh, well, the war's over now, so we won't bother sending you back to your outfit, then they need some people over at such and such. And I thought, oh, crumb, you know, I know at least know some of the guys that are outfit where I was, and I'd like to go see the buddies that we had and who's still there, and et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and anyway, he told me, he said, okay, here's your piece of paper. You go go to this outfit. Well, unfortunately, I, had a, I went on a boat across the English Channel, and the boat was traveling fairly good speed, and there was a little bit of a breeze, and I got my paper out to read it to, try to figure out what was going on, and I'll be darned if the wind didn't blow it out of my hand. <laughs> I told the captain, hey, m my orders are in the water. Too bad, too bad, soldier. <laughs> so uh, now what to do? So when I got over there, way over to France, I asked somebody, I said, where the heck are the supply trucks located, and how do I... So they told me where the supply trucks were loading stuff off the Navy boats and onto the supply trucks that would be sent in. So I went over there and I said, I can't remember where the heck it was I was supposed to go because I hadn't 
wasn't familiar with it, so I asked somebody, I said, do you know where the 78th Division is? And he, he says, those guys over there, I think one of those trucks over there is going to go there today or tomorrow. So I kept asking around and finally found somebody. And, and I got a ride to go back to the 78th Division. I figured they could iron this all out when we got there. And uh, at least I wasn't going AWOL to try to find a ship going back to the state side, <laughs> <laughs> which probably crossed my mind. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I got back to 78th and found uh, M Company of the 311th Regiment and walked into the office, or into the office and I said, Van Aten reporting for duty, sir. And he looked up and he says, what are you doing here? I don't have any paperwork for you. I said, well, unfortunately, I don't have any paperwork either. I was on the boat coming across the channel, and the darn thing blew out of my hand. And he says, well, I think I understand, Jack. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, I became part of the, part of the company again. And the occupation was not... Uh, uh, the town that we were in, and I can't even think of the name of the town we were in now, that there was a German ammunition train on the tracks, and, and part of our duty was to guard that to make sure nobody got a bunch of stuff and blew up a bunch of things. And by the time I got there, why they'd found that uh, the German artillery ammunition, instead of having black powder in it, it had sticks that looked like our little few, uh, things that the kids play with, and you light them, and they go zipping through the air. Uh, sparklers? Sparklers, mm -hmm. yeah. And so they uh, had found that if they'd, they'd pull the, the shell apart and dump these sparklers out and then light them and kind of have a 4th of July firework program. And that seemed like a fun thing to do. And I got one and lit it, and it went zipping around and went up in the hayloft of this barn. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to call the fire department. And here comes a person-drawn fire department, and they all had to shake hands and tell everybody hello and everything before they bothered to put water on the fire, but they got the fire out without hardly any damage to the barn at all. It uh, didn't help the hay any, but <laughs> they had to clear all that garbage out so that when I suppose, I suppose charcoal probably wouldn't be good, good food for the cows. I don't know <laughs> what that would do. Man, yeah, he's starting fires, and uh, somehow you still managed to become commissioner stateside. You slipped through the cracks on that one, Jack. Yeah, yeah I ended up, actually ended up being a firefighter in Los Angeles 29 years after I got home, and and my sergeant went back to uh, Germany, and he went to the town of the, of the uh, occupation, and uh, the lady who owned the barn and said, whatever happened to that young man that set my barn on fire? And, and Lloyd 
straight face, says, you know, he was in such remorse over that that he went to the city of Los Angeles and became a firefighter to <laughs> try to come. She says, all good for him. <laughs> to try to right his wrongs. Oh, man. That's funny. Well, uh, listen, we'll, we'll wrap this here in a sec, Jack, so we don't go too long here. But um, I just want to ask you, um, I've been talking about this before on the podcast, and I feel like these days in this country, a lot of people uh, don't have enough gratitude. You know, they're a little lacking on it. What was the mood like when you came back stateside after the war? I mean, how did it feel? How did people treat you? Um, do you was there that level of gratitude towards all of you that had fought and had been over there? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, everybody, as long as you had the uniform on, thank you for your service. They didn't care what you did in the service. You were there and you were part of it and... It was, there was no question that it was a, a extreme gratitude, and uh, um, I ended up in New from New York, ended up in an airplane to come to uh, Fort Lewis for my discharge. That was my that's my favorite military post. That's where I got my discharge. <laughs> <laughs> I always remember that one. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, and and then I got uh, over to Yakima, got home there with my where I'd been living with my aunt and uncle when I went through high school, and he said there's a letter on the on the um, mantle there for you, Jack. Back up a little bit here. As soon as as soon as I got into New York, I found a bunch of quarters and. and uh, stood in line for a couple hours to get to a payphone and called my the lady that had written to me for 33 months and promised to marry me if I got back in one piece. And uh, I called and said, I'm on American soil. And it'll, I said, I'm not sure what the timeline is, but if you want to set a date, why set a date? So anyway, then I got the discharge and went back to Yakima and went to the went home and there's a letter there for you, Jack. And I opened it up and it was an invitation to a wedding and I was a participant and I got discharged on the 24th of January '46 and the wedding was set for the 11th of February. And so I had a, a choice of visit with the folks for a day or two there and. Uh, and then uh, f head for head for Los Angeles, and I borrowed a suit from my older brother, who was about the same size that I was, and I left my uniform on, put suit and a few things in a duffel bag, and went out on the highway and stuck my thumb up, and I hitchhiked from Yakima to Los Angeles. Wow! The end of January, 1946. Passed two Greyhound buses that were in the ditch up on the pass, and uh, I'd have probably been on one of them if I'd have taken the bus. <laughs> and uh, at that point in time, anybody with a uniform standing on the side of the road, you didn't have to raise your thumb. Card stopped. How far are you going? Los Angeles. Well, I'm not going that far, but get in and drive. <laughs> I'm tired of driving, and... Wake me up when when you get to such and such a place. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> so, so 
uh, I got down there and got got there quite quite well in time. And uh, they had the wedding all planned, and I was the only one in my family. The rest were Canadians, and travel still wasn't something you did much of. Yeah. And uh, I looked out at that crowd of people, and I thought, what am I doing here? <laughs> I'm marrying that beautiful young lady. And it was such a fantastic marriage for uh, 67 years. We shared good, bad, and indifferent times, and we shared them together and shared them with love. And and uh, we had a if if half of the people that are married could have wed marriages with as much joy as we had, it'd sure be the divorce factories that have to go out of business. That would be too bad. It was awesome. She was a delightful human being. Her family was wonderful. And we both each, we both told each other that if we had, if everybody had mother-in-laws like each of us have, there'd be no mother-in-law jokes. They were both just, we both loved our mother-in-laws. They were just incredible people. Yeah. So. That's, wow, that's a, 30, 33 months writing you. That's uh, that's a lot of devotion, you know. 30, I, 37 years. Thir uh, 33 months writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can't, sometimes I can't get a girl's to respond to my text message, you know, <laughs> let alone write me a handwritten letter. So that's devotion. And uh, look, I think it worked out for you, you know. Oh. You, you had the horse sense to know yeah. that you were onto something. And I mean, what a great way to, what a great way to get started. Yeah, so. um, it was awesome. It was just, I can't imagine. 1946, I went on fire department the 22nd of July. And while I was still on probation, we ended up buying a house. Paid just under $5,000 for the house. Payments, <laughs> were, <laughs> payments were $49.90 a month. Tax. Wow. Tax interest and principal. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's insanity. Yeah. And we lived in that house for 12 or 13 years, raised two little, two delightful children in there. And the son became a firefighter for Seattle, and the daughter became a registered nurse. And life was good. Life was good. And, and still is good. I'm 93 years old, and we're in the process of planning a trip back to Europe. We're going to go and meet in London. We're going to meet a, a, a group of uh, people who are cleverly named Beyond the Band of Brothers. We're going to be in London and England for a couple of three days, and then we're going to Normandy, and as far as I'm concerned, that whole thing is hallowed ground. And the other evening, I saw a television program where they took a picture of the cemetery over 9,000, and I forget the last bunch of numbers, but 9,000 over 9,500 of American soldiers that were killed those two days. And it's pretty, pretty uh, hallowed ground there. And I I thought I would never go back, but uh, I think I'm looking forward to going and 
and uh, say thank you to those gentlemen. And uh, I th thank all the veterans from all of the wars. Uh, and these guys now that are over here fighting people that they have no clue who the enemy is. And it's nasty, nasty stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and it was different in your time, yeah. I mean, you guys knew what you were fighting for. You knew that it was a just cause. You know, you knew, obviously, they were putting people in ovens. I mean, that's that's horrific. Yeah. And then, like you say, nowadays, it's a little more convoluted. You know, we don't know exactly what we're fighting for, yeah. who exactly we're even fighting. And yeah. um, it's it's different times. But uh, we got to wrap this thing up, Jack. But uh, incredible story. A really incredible story. And um, it, it's great to talk to a guy like you. And in my opinion... You personify American exceptionalism. I mean, you personify it. You know, you, you went and you fought in the war. Uh, you did what you had to do. You, you, you played your part. You came home and you had a successful life, a successful marriage, and you have a couple of successful kids uh, all to follow it up. So um, thank you. Like you said, thank you for your service. Uh, we, we appreciate it. You know, who knows where this country would be if it wasn't for guys like you back then. And, um, yeah, we just really appreciate it, Jack. Yeah. Well, I, I just uh, need to stress the fact that we need to let our service people know that we appreciate what they're doing. They, it's it's nasty, it's miserable work, and it's you never know the outcome. And these these gentlemen and ladies now, we got ladies that are flying combat planes and amazing stuff. I do want to mention my brother. He did 23 missions in the B-29 over Japan. And Boeing just put a B-29 on the floor at their museum down by the Boeing airport south of town. And that airplane, his crew flew over Japan five different times. And wow. that airplane. Wow, that specific one. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, I, I hope that, uh, I hope that, if you took time to listen, that this was an interesting story for you, and I certainly appreciate all of the wonderful people that I've had the opportunity to share with, military and civilian firefighters all over the country, all over the world, are kind of a crazy, wonderful bunch of people, men and women now, and so... I just say thank you for listening, and uh, I hope that it's been important and entertaining and valuable for you to, to have taken your time. I think it definitely has been, Jack. I think it is, and I think the people will enjoy it. So, And, uh, yeah, thank you again for being here with us and uh, sharing the story. We really appreciate it, and uh, have fun on that trip. That sounds like uh, that'll be a lot of fun, I think, for you. I think it's going to be very, very interesting and important. Mm -hmm. Most yeah. definitely. All right, thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. Jack Van Eaton here with you guys. Uh, quite the story and quite the man. So thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. What did I tell you guys? Was that not an incredible story or what? I mean, come on. That, that's so insane, the things that guy has seen. Can't even imagine. He also wanted me to mention, he forgot to bring it up on the show, but he also wanted me to mention that the guy is in the French Legion of Honor. He's a member of the French Legion of Honor. He didn't, he didn't even know about it. He, he didn't even know about it until a buddy of him 
has brought it up to him and told him about it. So can you can you guys believe that though? He he was a knight. He's a he's a knight in the French Legion of Honor. That's like that's like being a count or a duke or something. Like who even know? You got to be invited for that. You you don't. No one can just do that on their own free will. Ninety one years old and he got and he got the nod. So uh, congratulations, Jack. It's definitely definitely well deserved. And uh, you know he said uh, it was more. He was accepting it on behalf of uh, the people who had fought with him and weren't able to uh, be there with him on that day. So um, way to go, Jack. Uh, true, true American hero. And like I said, true example of American exceptionalism. So uh, thank you guys for joining us. Hope you uh, enjoyed that as well. Appreciated it. All that good stuff. Um, Earful in the Emerald City. Uh, let us know, guys. Tell me. Let me know what you think. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Episode 79. Thank you guys for joining us, and I will be talking with you next week.